You're listening to Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, and how people define happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott. I'm your host for the show. And on this episode, I'm talking to Ben Williams. Ben is a former Royal Marine, served in Afghanistan. He's also a former bouncer. He's also a former drug addict. And we talk about a lot of those experiences in this book. Some of his battle stories from the front line in Afghanistan in the book are just unreal. We talk about a couple of them, but yeah, really uh, worth checking out. It, I kind of read it with my jaw uh, just dropping. It just Every time I turned the page, it was, uh, it was pretty amazing. So really interesting book. Um, we had a real mission with this episode, actually. We just had tech fails on multiple uh, fronts. So I, I, I realise I'm using all these military <laughs> like analogies like on multiple fronts and stuff um, and missions. But yeah, uh, we ended up recording the first half of this one day and then we recorded the second half of it like a week later. And then even when we were recording the second half, we recorded that in two halves. So yeah, thanks Mark Stedman, my producer, for, for piecing all of this together. Uh, and I think when you get into the episode you might find that you just can't really tell where the joins are because I think we did a pretty good job of just keeping the conversation going and um, we both just listened to the first half before we started uh, the second bit just to sort of get back in the zone and all that. So I think we did a, a pretty decent job of um, of getting a full hour even though the tech was was very much against us. But yeah, so we talk about his time in Afghanistan, his take on commando values and leadership and performance we talk about his work with the England football team. Uh, we talk about planning, just really lots of good stuff and also how to sleep at night, which I think if you're probably in war zones and have experienced things like that must be a really big challenge as well. So lots of really valuable stuff in this episode. I think you're going to really enjoy it. So let's get straight into it. Here's my episode with Ben Williams. <laughs> I'm with Ben Williams, and we're going to talk about your book, The Commando Mindset. So it's been, and it's been a long week for both of us. We were just saying, um, kind of off, off record before we started. So what have you been up to so far today? Today has been probably my most productive day of the week because we're now back at home, locked away, aren't we? And we've got a foosball table, or foosballs from friends, isn't it? But uh, yeah, football table at work and. I'm really bad at wandering past it with a cup of tea and then just challenging people. And I actually make quite a few cups of tea. So it's actually nice to be at home, a little bit quieter, just getting on with what I need to do. But yeah, it's been a, it's been a tough week, isn't it? Sort of going into lockdown, although we kind of sensed it was coming. Um, we have to suddenly close down everything and move people around, make sure everyone's happy at home. Suddenly half the furniture in the office goes missing. <laughs> Counting chairs out the door to make sure you get <laughs> the same amount of chairs back. Yeah, an interesting week to say the least, but we're here, we're alive, yeah. we're even. Absolutely. Well. And we're going to talk about the book, The Commando Mindset, and the thing I wanted to start with feels like probably the bit that you're really used to talking about and telling the stories of Wednesday the 24th of August 2011. Mm. Let's start with that. So tell us what happened on that on that day in Afghanistan. Yeah, it was a day I won't forget too quickly. We were tasked with an operation to basically coined as the hornet's nest. It was to fly in, into an area of the green zone, which was sort of midway between Nadi Ali North and Nadi Ali South, a place in Helmand province. And it was a, an area which had kind of been untouched by the Taliban, untouched by UK troops. It was run by the Taliban. It's where they 
made their IEDs where they recruited a lot of planning. Do you want to just explain IEDs? Because you explain it in the book, but if anyone doesn't know. Yeah, IEDs, um, improvised explosive device. So homemade bombs and the Taliban would make these bombs out of planks of wood, small thins of metal, thick pieces of metal, some battery packs and, and load it with explosives, put it in the ground, leave it on. Troops would come by and obviously, unfortunately, stand on them, which was causing a lot of the amputations and deaths at those that time in 2011. How does, how does that actually work, by the way? So if you so what so you're standing on two bits of wood, are you or something? And then it. So how they did it was yeah. So the, there'd be two planks of wood. Sometimes they were saw blades, and they would probably be about a centimeter, maybe two centimeters apart, and they'd have a bit of a block of wood at each end. So it was like almost a, as a pallet looks at the end, but a lot thinner. Right. And then they would have a strip of wire going uh, metal wire across the top of it on the bottom and then one at the uh, the top. And um, that was then connected by cables to a small battery pack, maybe the size of sometimes you only needed a very small volt battery, D battery, whatever they're called, and and sometimes car batteries. And then they would make homemade explosives and then fill the explosives with bolts, metal, any sort of stuff they get in the area, dig it into the ground on well-used areas that they know troops come through cover it over they were experts at this uh you'd un- walk through and if you don't detect it you unfortunately stand on it and it and that's their that was their way of fighting they're very good at it they were very good at that way of fighting so we had to concentrate on taking out those factories that were building they were building these ieds within because at the point in time that was what was maiming and killing all of our troops so yeah, we were tasked to fly into this area six months into a seven-month tour. We were pretty fatigued by this point. It had been quite a rough tour up to this point. And yeah, it was to go in and have a fight. It was literally pick a fight for seven days straight and let them know we can get to them. And even on the first day, the day before, or so the 23rd, when we arrived, it I think we took six casualties within a couple of hours. We were in heavy fighting all day and it was really kinetic, a term we use the military which is it's kicking off <laughs> in civilian terms and the 24th came around and the brutal fight in the day before and lots of injuries and close calls and a lot of adrenaline and we patrolled into a village which was merely two three hundred meters away from our compound that we'd occupied and the idea was to go in we were there to reassure the local population, which was a very scared population compared to other places we'd been because the Taliban had full control of this area. And just as we were coming up to the junction that we needed to enter one of the compounds that two guys appeared in front of us dressed all in black and in trainers, um, which is a very telltale sign of sort of Taliban fatigue, fighting age males, which is the age of sort of 18 to 30, not the sort of 18 to 30 club you'd probably want to join. And uh, they would just stood there and it was myself and the point man, Jordan, just stood there looking at them metres away. You could have shaken their hands, they were that close. And there was like this, there was just this weird sort of standoff of almost like, shit, that's the Taliban right in front of us, like metres away. And they had the shit, <laughs> a bunch of Marines metres away, but they were unarmed and they just they just sprinted straight off down the street, out of sight, and there was just nothing you could do. There's you can't go shooting them in the back. You can't go running after them because that's suicidal. It's the, Afghan at that time had a very a huge impact on our psychology. It was very difficult to battle a the hidden bombs, but b when someone appears when you know they're enemy but they're not armed, you can't do anything about it. Your hands are tied until you're shot at. 
And of course, like, so yeah, so obviously you're in uniform and identifiable and whatever, so they can shoot you, but you're, it's kind of like your ethics code, right? Is that if you don't see the firearm on them, you just have to assume they're civilian. Yeah, can't do anything. And anyway, you, we call them spider senses when your hairs all stand up and you know who exactly they are. And, and they ran off into the field and you could see them sort of run down the street and turn right into the field and you could hear them cutting through the corn. And I turned around to my, my commander, Vaisu, who's just behind me, and he said, get in the compound now. And we could see it literally it's 20 metres in front of us. And we just started to run. All of us just started to run um, in a straight line, one behind the other. And within a couple of moments of taking a few feet forwards, the, the world erupted around us. And a huge explosion came from our right-hand side, which was in a wall right next to us. And I remember hit, feeling like this intense pain in my leg, something on my head, and just the explosion I felt almost went through me. It's really surreal to describe because when you describe it, it sounds like you're trying to be a hero, but it, it, it's no way at all. I was just left standing there because it had happened so quick. The blast didn't take me off my feet. It just went through me and around me. And all, all I remember sort of being stood there just in this cloud of dust, thinking, what the fuck has just happened there? And then this intense pain in my leg just dropped me to the floor. And I actually fell on my leg in a really strange way. And when I looked down, because my leg was bent round on myself, all I could see was the end of my le- my kneecap. And because my trousers were ripped, there was a bit of blood and there was a lot of pain. And I was like, oh, I've stepped on the idea. It's me. I've lost my leg. I've lost my leg. Having this sort of weird moment with myself. And then uh, my leg kind of, I saw my boot and I sat on it. I was like, Oh, thank God, there it is. <laughs> my leg round. And um, the dust cleared. And I looked back down the track and I realised I was by far the best off in the troop in, in my injuries and how um, it was clearly the other guys which had been hit quite hard. And they were all just lying across the track. And that, that was kind of it, really. It was into get a grip yourself. I had some shrapnel wounds in my leg, but it was I needed to help my buddies. So I started crawling around, getting to my friends, which were suffering vice in particular and, and started to do some medical work on him to save his life and so this i think you talk at one point about you're sort of grabbing clothes and trying to plug wounds and things like that right yeah it was um when i got to him there was another marine which had run up the track richie and he'd got to him and had started working on his neck already because vice had taken a huge amount of shrapnel the whole blast had pretty much hit him and Luke behind him. And yeah, Richie was dealing with the arterial bleed in his neck. And when I got to Vicey, he was, he, well, he appeared dead, to be honest. And um, he was losing a lot of blood from his artery in his neck. Sorry for squeamish listeners. And then Richie was struggling to get, obviously stop that bleed, but also get something which we all carry, which is called hemclot, which is something that you stuff into wounds in order to stop the bleeds or control bleeds. He was struggling to get that out. I'm lying there with my leg all bleeding it was just a complete mess it was a cluster but it was a controlled cluster if, if if that sounds right i managed to convince richie to let go of his neck and i take control of the bleed whilst richie then got his hem clot out stuffed it in there and we began to work on him and then the, the medic came over vicky and pushed me out of the way and said get a grip of yourself go and sort yourself out and the rest i suppose is strangely history because within an hour we're on the medical helicopter being evacuated back to Camp Bastion, and then within 24 hours, we were evacuated back to Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham to have operations and begin rehab. 
Yeah, I forgot that's the that's the big military hospital, isn't it? Because I I used to live just down the road from there. Yeah, so you had Selioke, and then yeah, I lived in Selioke. Yeah, yeah Selioke. Then the the QE's the massive hospital, isn't it? Yeah, and the military have yeah a, a few wards up there, and it was where all the where all the casualties from Afghan at the time were going back to. Not the yeah. most morale lifting ward to be on, that's for sure. Yeah. And the the bit that I was curious about is so you're flown into that area to do this seven day mission mm. and then you've already got a compound. So is the compound like just set up like really quickly then or are there more compounds that are a bit more kind of semi-permanent if you like? Do you know what yeah, I mean? so with, with most, um, how it works is in time you fly into an area, you take over a local compound. So unfortunately it's one a farmer may own or one which is disused, but you paid the farmer a lot of money to occupy that compound, which they never have a problem with. And you then occupy that compound. And if you're staying there on a permanent basis, you will then fortify it with sandbags and HESCO, which is sort of these big containers, sandbag containers you fill up with concrete or rubble and just fortify the, the position. Uh, and we did a lot of that going around and if not occupying bases that were already occu- taken over by the British. But on that occasion, it was literally flying to a land ne- next to this compound, tell the farmer we're here to stay for a week, here's your money, you can either stay or you can leave, but we're occupying this because of its tactical relevance in the area. It's a str- strategic relevance and yeah, you just make it home. Not the most comfy home. My bed was right next to the sort of cow pat bin with a cow in it, <laughs> which was really diff- different. But um, yes, you just take them over and you live with what you have to and you live in their compounds till the operation's done. And what's it like in the, obviously there are hours when you're on on duty, but you've also got to rest and stuff. Mm. So in those moments in the middle of that, like, what are you doing? Are you sitting there watching Netflix? Are you playing cards? Like, what does what's the life like when you're outside of those the, those big action moments? I've been talking about this recently. In fact, in the last sort of four or five months since we've all been going through this, well, six months now, in you're basically in a lockdown. You can't go outside the base without twelve heavily armed marines. The threat for us at the time, although the Taliban were there fighting us, that was um, you kind of had quite a lot of control over that. You never knew when they were going to hit you, but when they hit you, you, British forces were very good at hitting them back. But with the IEDs, they were becoming a hidden threat and you couldn't see them. And I've really sort of tried to use that as an example for people at the moment to try and draw a new perspective on. Outside our walls right now, there's this hidden threat that we call COVID. And you have to protect yourself to go out into the open world right now. And you have to put on PPE and you have to keep your space from people. And it's very similar to how it would be in in combat operations. But equally inside uh, the compound, everyone very much, uh, rightly as well, because it's what's documented, jumps to the conclusion of fierce warfare. It's all the time. It's constant battles. There's always a threat. There's never really much rest. Where actually war's 90% boredom, 10% action. And that 10% action is what happens outside the base. Also, what happens inside the base, obviously, you do get attacked here and there and you have to defend it. But then there's also a lot of spare time. 90% boredom is what the norm is for us out there. And that was cleaning weapons and kit ready for the next patrol. There's planning for the next patrol and strategizing for going out and, and just patrolling the local area. Or is it an operation that we're flying on? You would, you'd physically work out. You would 
do some administration, what we'd call administration, which is looking after the stores, sorting out the water, the rations. You'd obviously cook. You'd have to provide sentry, which is security for the base. And it's very much this sort of FOB routine. So forward operating base is what we call them. And you have the routine of what you do within it, as well as your job, which is to go outside the wire and fight the enemy. But there is a lot of sitting around. There's a yeah. lot of sitting around with your own thoughts in in the group as a group of men, and obviously Marines as they are there. And then we had attached colleagues from across the Navy and some Army regiments. And yeah, it's just a lot of time spent with one another, often around just a basic fire. You never had internet, didn't have TV, uh, apart from one fob I went to where we did have a TV, but you sort of had to punch it to get it working. <laughs> uh, and that was really it. But it was the most basic way of being a human being. You're in a hostile environment where you need to survive, but you have very little to do, which is strangely quite nice and take away the hostility part of it it's quite nice to be basic here and there and i see a lot of that sort of relevance in what we all go through at the moment is there's a threat outside our walls we are sort of confined to our spaces at home right now to have to get on with a routine and keep ourselves occupied and we are living out a 90 percent boredom 10 percent action for many of us i'd love to know what you feel like you learned from the 90 percent as well as what you feel like you learned from the 10%? I learned to take life a bit more seriously and to do things that I want to do. The 10% you only realise is the sort of 10% when you have that 90% boredom to reflect. You don't think about the close call when the bullet hits the log next to your head or the wall or the bomb goes off or the the rounds land at your feet. You don't have time to think about, oh, that was close. I'm going to go home and live the best life possible. That doesn't happen there. It happens in that 90% part where you are sat around with your thoughts thinking, wow, that was really close today. Wow, how fragile is life? When unfortunately a friend would be injured or killed, you you realise how fragile that is. And actually when we get away from this hellhole, if we get away from this hellhole, what am I going to do when I get back? And I think it's in the sort of 90% boredom where you're left with your routine and then just your thoughts where I found I did a lot of reflecting to think about what's next? What am I going to do when I get home? What's my career look like? What do I want to achieve? What haven't I been doing? Who didn't I say I love you to enough? All those things, the very sort of small things. I dreamt a lot about pizza for some reason. And that's where it really became clear. Yeah, You do your sort of processing of that 10% action during the 90% boredom. And that's where you make those decisions and maybe write a few thoughts down. I was very much getting into personal development books at the time and thinking, oh, what a place to read personal development books where they're telling you to be motivated and all those things and and what to do with your life where you're risking it every day and having that sort of relevance rubbed in your face very quickly and in quite a raw state. So yeah, a lot of reflection and and very much perspective of what life really means to, to come back to if we get back to the UK, which is inevitably happened a bit different to how i thought i'd come back but uh i got back um there's another story i'd love you to tell uh, a little bit later which is the one where you're pinned to the roof but let's mm. get on to that one because i feel like we're moving into talking about personal development there and that's obviously what you are now focused on is yeah. taking this idea of the commando mindset into businesses as a leadership and performance coach and you've worked with some really interesting organizations, HSBC and Volkswagen and, and Man United and various people like that. You talk in the book about the the values of being a commando. 
Mm. And then you've also got this model, the ICE model. So I'd love to just hear more about that, just so so we can get a sense of what can anybody in business learn from being a Royal Marine Commando? Yeah, values. So there are two different things. The ICE model, I'll, I'll come on to in a second. But values, I think the word values is, I find sometimes quite overused, but underutilized. A lot of people, I say organizations mainly, people say or businesses say they have values, but quite often I think it's we're shocked to see how little they actually live them or breathe mm-hmm. them yeah. or actually live out what they say is on the wall. When I joined the Marines, I thought I was courageous. I thought I was brave. That's why I decided to be a bouncer before I joined and that got me into a whole heap of trouble as well. But I, I didn't know really what values were. I didn't really understand them. I didn't really take them seriously. And then sort of day one of commando training, you're almost issued a set, literally. Like, lads, you will believe in these by the end of the day. <laughs> and it's so sweeping. And you spend weeks, like even months, like, what the hell does excellence mean? And yeah. why do they want me to have such sort of humility? What does that even stand for? But when you do commando training and you go through it and you begin to see what these words mean when the commando instructors, they embody them. Like they ooze these four words and and also our four spirits and our our four values is excellence, integrity, self-discipline and humility. And our four spirits is courage, determination, unselfishness and cheerfulness, mainly in the face of adversity. I like the little words that are next to those. So in the book, what it says is excellence is strive to do better. Yeah. Integrity is tell the truth. Which also we have within the Marines. It's your virginity. You can only lose it once. (laughs) <laughs> which I tell people all the time. We <laughs> uphold integrity. Integrity is a huge thing. It brings out true characters and, and mm. makes great people. But self-discipline, yeah, resist the easy option. Yeah. And then humility is respect the rights, diversity and values of others. Yeah. They are who we are. It's, it's the Royal Marines' DNA and it's passed on to every recruit which comes through. And if you don't embody them, you soon find yourself not really part of the team or as much a part of the team as you should be. Um, because in my belief and what I've come to realize over the years is those eight words are very human words. They're, they're very basic, but very powerful words. Excellence and integrity is in the face of combat when your life is at risk. And I spoke about it in the book about being on the blue door where I had to go through it with my commander. It's just us two and the Taliban were on the other side of it. There's not a chance in hell I want to go through that door at all. Like I'd rather stay in my comfort zone on this side, keep it locked. And if they come in, we'll get them. But that's not how it works. That's not how combat works. Sometimes in combat, you have to risk in order to save others. And people see that as a hero thing. It's not a hero thing whatsoever. It's the fact that you live and breathe a set of values that help you do your job to the highest capability and abilities. So when you take that and shine it on the light of maybe how the business world is or or what people use as their values to help power what they want to achieve, if you really tap into what what is your values? What what makes you as a person? It does literally, it sounds cliche, but it becomes that moral compass that helps guide your decision making. I've said it to athletes. Athletes are quite easy to work with on this one, but a great example is, is you're training to do a marathon next year, if COVID's not here. A marathon's a great day, you know, 26.5 miles to go out and test yourself with a bunch of other people raising money. But you don't just do 26.5 miles just off the cuff. You have to train for it. And usually that training is three or four months in advance. And where most marathons sit in the year, that means you're training through the winter months when it's dark, it's cold, the rain's tapping at the window. 
And you can smell bolognese being made in the kitchen and the clunk of a red wine bottle. Of course, it, it feels more appealing to stay inside. And some people do. They, they quit on that. I need to go for a run today, but I'll stay inside. I'll go out tomorrow when it's a bit drier. Mm. Or really, if you have a strong set of values and you value the word integrity, you value the word excellence, you, you'll say to yourself, it's horrible outside. I don't like it. But my training program says I need to go outside. I need to go and do my run. And it might not be the best performance you ever do. It might not be the best run you do. But the difference is the fact your mindset's there to click and say, I'm going to go and do it. And that's really like, I find that fundamentally is down to what you value and how that then fuels your mindset. So yeah, the, the values are very important, very important to me. And, and I use them within my own business. Our, <laughs> our business is, is reflected off the Marines ones because they're so powerful. We live and breathe them. And it's right, right to do so. And I suppose I was I was also thinking as you're talking there, I wonder if when you're so used to actually utilizing those values like day in, day out and kind of using them to to guide your decision making process, which I think is what values should always be. I was just thinking, I wonder if that's really hard to sort of deprogram yourself. But obviously if you're coming back and then using those same values to inspire others, then it's actually really easy, isn't it? Because it must be quite a habitual thing by now. Yeah, and it is. And, and sometimes it's not the best thing. Excellence and discipline in, in combat is, well, it's everything. But uh, an element of it is to make sure your weapon system is always clean and ready to be used at a moment's notice, that your kit is serviced and works properly. So when you're out on the ground and um, things go wrong, that you can actually function, not just physically, but with your equipment. But it has a knock-on effect. We talk a lot about veterans coming home from certain situations and what it's done to them. But I remember coming home and having huge Barneys with my wife because she wasn't lining up the bean cupboard properly, like the bean cans and the sweet corn and, and, and the cupboards were just slightly messy and right. they weren't aligned yeah. with the labels facing yeah. the same way. And that, again, is, you know, I was getting angry. I was volatile over it because I'd come from an area which you need to be on top of your shit. That's what happens to then falling out of her because the beans weren't lined up. It's ridiculous. I, I couldn't care less what the bean cupboard looks like now because that sort of decompression of that habit's controlled. You know, I know where to, we don't need to have an excellent bean cupboard to be excellent people. But it's just, it's weird to sort of have to um, step away from that psyche or, as well. It's, it's Sometimes it can be quite obsessive. But there is a balance. You know, you can be lacking it or you can be too obsessive. Not every day you want to go out in the rain and train. And that's that's kind of, again, not what I'm implying. I, I, I myself sometimes see the rain tapping on the window and go, oh, wait till tomorrow morning. But it's how regular is that? Yeah. And where is it a one-off compared to, oh, I've stayed in all week because it's been raining. There's a real difference there. Yeah, I've definitely had weeks of marathon training where I've uh, definitely stayed in all week if it's been raining. <laughs> I have to admit. <laughs> you get, get me on the phone when it next happens. <laughs> So you're talking about mindset there and like I'm totally with you that it can go too far but we do need some kind of mindset sort of structure and and framework to to work from and you've got this whole model called the ICE model right so inspiration courage enactment do you want to just tell us about that yeah not to give the ICE model any sort of takeaway it's credibility but it was really made up on the spot and it was made up on the spot because I was currently serving in the Marines. I knew I was leaving. I wanted to be a coach. I wanted to go into that world of speaking. And I just, I don't know how I did it, but I blagged a, a speaking opportunity at Volkswagen. 
in, it, in fact, it's Volkswagen Group, which obviously have Audi, Seat, Skoda, and commercial vehicles as well underneath it. I've been around a few of those myself, actually, as well. Yeah, the one Mil- uh, Milton Keynes. Mil- Milton Keynes, that's it. So yeah, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, so I, I was like, oh wow, like this. What am I actually going to talk to him about? And just made made this thing up on the spot. I was like, put a load of pictures together, and I've looked back at it. I've kept it, but I've looked back at it recently. Actually, I was like, wow. What a cluster, because it's just <laughs> full of like loads of different photos on one screen. And then the next was loads of writing. It just went against any sort of way of doing a PowerPoint. It literally these three words. So just put inspiration, courage, and then execution was the original E. And I didn't really touch on it too much and then mentioned it towards at the end and, and sort of just blagged something around it. I said, uh, yeah, to, to go through life, you've got to have something that inspires you, which in turn drives your courage then and then helps you execute on the plan. And it was, yeah, it was a bit clumsy and a bit wish-washy. But um, someone came up afterwards. They, were, they said, that's really interesting, that thing you were saying about, what was it, ice? And I'm looking at them going, yeah, I think it was ice. I think that's what I put in the PowerPoint. And uh, they mentioned, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to have something that drives you and then how that can build your courage to then help you take action and they just suggested they were like maybe don't use the word execution though there's probably another word around it execution sounds quite violent and I was, and yeah, especially when you're coming from a i mean execution in business terms has it its own meaning right around yeah. putting goals into action and stuff but obviously when you're coming in with a, a military background it can perhaps have other connotations yeah and there was no getting away from it the terrorism was at its height at that point as well which wasn't nice and i'm sort of trying to walk around inspiring people using that exact same word execution and so yeah it was time to change that very quickly but actually what it did do was draw out a way of thinking and that there's something around this ice this inspiration courage and enactment and when I started to trace back through my career there was many points that I saw it very evidently but there was a point when actually I was on a course in Wales and it was a three-week course a military course and it was a very arduous course in the Brecon Beacons, which is obviously associated with Special Forces selection anyway. And I was actually on a similar type of course, and we were out on our own navigating, basically. And you would navigate through the hills, you'd hit checkpoints, then you'd move on to the next place. And we were on the sixth march of the week, and each march is a minimum of 20 kilometres, up to sort of 40 kilometres, you're on your own, you're navigating it all, you're carrying 50 pounds of kit, it's very tiring, it's brecken in the winter. A horrible place. Strangely, I love it now, but yeah, back then you didn't really like it. And I remember going up this hill and my quads were in agony, everything was chafing, it was just horrible. And I couldn't see the top as well because the, the fog was in, so you could only see for about 50 metres. And I just lost sight of where I was at height. I just had this real moment to myself. I sort of crouched on one knee and felt sorry for myself. Uh, and had that quitting kind of way of thinking as oh, just I could just sit here now and then maybe walk off the hill and just give up. And then another person sort of appeared out of the fog uh, and they appeared behind me and then came up next to me and they thought it was the top, near the top like I did. And he bent over on one knee as well. He said, oh, fuck this. And I was like, yeah, this is shit. Well, we did a real negative couple of minutes. But then he took something out of his pocket and he looked at it and he took this massive sort of breath of air and, and then kissed whatever it was in his hand. I couldn't see what it was, but I knew it wasn't his map or his compass. He was looking at something else. 
And then he just went, I'll see you later, mate. No, I didn't know this bloke. He was just on the same course. And off he plodded. He just, he just stood up again and just walked off up the hill into the fog. Like, no heroics, wasn't sprinting. Uh, he just moved. And he was moving past me and now quicker than me. And I got a grip of myself. I was like, oh, come on, put, Ber- put your Bergen back on, which was, our, which was our pack, and carried on myself. And I saw this guy later that evening when we were having food and I just went over, I was like, oh, I had a conversation with him. I was like, oh, it's the guy on the hill next to you. And we had a moan again. Oh, it's a fucking shit route, wasn't it? Yeah, it's horrible, blah, blah, blah. I said, mate, I've got to ask you something though. I said, you took something out of your pocket, didn't you? And you had a look at it. And he it just jumped to his pocket straight away then and then, there and then on the spot. As I was asking him what it was and he took it out and it was, on one side was, it was a laminated sort of credit card sized picture and it was dog-eared. It was been through the mill back. Uh, and on the front was his daughter. And then on the back was a picture of a Range Rover and a beach holiday. And like, obviously, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work it out. But I asked him anyway, I said, what, what is this? And he coined it, he just went, oh, this is my inspiration card. Whenever I've like hit a wall or I'm feeling fatigued or I'm just, I'm just struggling to see the clarity and why I'm doing what I'm doing, I just remind myself of what inspires me. And it all linked is his daughter, which he doesn't live with as a divorced parent. And he wants to be on this course because he'll earn more money if he succeeds and can drive her around in the Range Rover and take her to the beach. And it always stayed with me. And it was, you know, years later after speaking to that person at Volkswagen, and I started to sum it up in my head as to, though this actually helps all of us. We all have this. For him on that mountain that day, for the guy I was with, he was thinking of quitting like I was. He wanted to give up. And he took this thing from his pocket, which inspired him and reminded him of why he's on that course. And that doesn't take away the pain. That doesn't take away the suffering. That doesn't take away the adversity that he's going through at that spot. But what it does do is it, it gains courage. It builds courage within him. It, it drives that self-belief and reminds him of why he's there to do what he's doing, which then encourages him to take a few more steps forward, which is what the E became was enactment. So change from execution to enactment. And that's really how the ICE model looks uh, and what it is. And, and I've written it and spoke, written about it and spoken about it for a few years now. And, and I talk passionately about its simplicity. Simon Sinek talks about is why, how, what. This to me is a little bit more personal. It's very much for the person of what does inspire you, what gets you out of bed each morning, or what doesn't get you out of bed each morning. Where does your courage permit and where does it decrease? Where is it not present within your life where you want it to be? And how do you take steps towards what you want to achieve? And, and in other areas of your life, why don't you take steps forward to what you want to achieve? And for many of us, having something that inspires us, it becomes the ultimate driver. You know, I've lived this my, myself very recently. Really difficult time to be in business. It's very hard. You have to push very hard. And there's been times when I've come home, but like, oh, what's the point? I just give up and be a coach or just do something else. But then I look at my two adorable children, who's three and seven, and it reminds me that I need to go out the door and continue going. And they build that courage. They build that self-belief to enact and take steps forwards. And it's not easy. It's not meant to be easy. In fact, it's meant to be very hard. But that's when you know what inspires you is is truly a driver for you that you it helps you build that courage to take steps towards what you want to achieve and over the years it's just developed into something that I speak openly and passionately about and 
I think a lot of people see relevance in it because the moment you're aware of it and conscious of it, actually, of course, it makes sense. Having something that inspires you helps build courage to enact on what you want to achieve. For sure. From challenging circumstances is where you get the most growth, right? So, yeah. so I, I think your story really speaks to that. I also love the fact that the guy has labeled it his inspiration card. Like it's a really conscious thing of I'm going to be in this really hard situation. I better have some inspiration and I'm going to laminate that and put it in my pocket and take it. Yeah. I just think it's a really nice, very intentional way of thinking about it. But I think you sort you know, you sort of do yourself down there a little bit with the whole, I turned up and just blagged it and <laughs> came up with these three words. Because I suppose the point of all of that is that often we don't know what we know until we crystallize it, right? So we were talking earlier about how there was all those long days and nights where you're kind of sat in the bunker thinking and processing stuff. And so I guess it's like, you know, once you get back, you can start to really make sense of what you learn in some of those really difficult moments and on the Brecon Beacons, right? Yeah. And it does, you know, you summarized it perfectly there in the sense of crystallizing it because... It was only that when it was pointed out there and then on the spot by that person from Volkswagen where I thought, I made this up. I just stumbled upon it for this presentation, but I've been living it. You've been living it. They've been living it. Yeah. For me, it's, I had to have something. I was only going to go two ways in life if I didn't come away from drugs. I was going to end up killing myself or ending up in prison. Two not very good places to be. And this scene, the Royal Marines had this that becomes an inspiration. And the inspiration isn't just the advert. It's reminded me of when I was going to Portsmouth as a young boy or hiding in bushes, pretending to be a commando, that inspire you to make a difference within your life. And you get that energy back. Why am I doing these drugs? Why am I pissing my life away when I have an opportunity? And the inspiration is gradual. You know, it, it's a big inspiration, but there's also small ones. It's I want to earn the green berry and become a commando. But can't just do that overnight. I have to feel inspired to ditch drugs. I have to be inspired to get fit. I have to be inspired to apply. You know, the moment you apply and you're through the gates, it doesn't mean it's all all over. The journey's only just begun and you have to then find inspiration within every week. You know, when you're in the mud, you're tired, you're cold, and someone's called you nothing but an arsehole all day, you, you do question as to why you're there, but then you reach in and you find that thing that drives you. I'm here to achieve this. I'm here to... I'm inspired to not go back to who I was. There's so many things which in turn increases that courage. And yeah, it, it, it comes true when you speak to the civilian world and go, oh, yeah, it's not just three letters, three words that I've just made up. It's something that we've all, whether consciously or unconsciously, lived in one way or another. We have all been inspired by something that builds our courage to help us enact what we want to achieve. Um, some do it more frequently than others. Some are more conscious of it than others, but we all do do it. And that's really now the mission of ICE is to point ICE out to everyone within everyone's life, to, to someone it might be climbing Everest, to another person it might just simply be meeting ends meet next week. But we all find it within ourselves. And it's really fun to talk about it because people go, it's so simple, but I've been doing it. You know, that's our point. That's exactly the conversation I had with myself. Well, that's so simple, but I've been doing it. And that experience of the Brecon Beacons. So you talk in the book and we were talking earlier about your contact who is an agent in football and mm. you end up taking people from the England football team up to the Brecon Beacons, right? As well. And um, no, so them that was in Devon. Similar drills. That was in Devon. 
Yeah, that was, but similar life. Yeah, <laughs> they got it. Putting them in in a in a similar place. So tell us about that. How did that come about? And what was the what do you think Gareth Southgate was trying to get out of that? What was his what was his interest in putting the players through that kind of a, a sort of very physically punishing routine? I know, I definitely know one of the reasons. In fact, I know a couple of the reasons. But how it came about was England were preparing for the World Cup in 2017. I was at the Kamano Training Centre as a corporal, uh, working with Royal Marines recruits, and I was just finishing up my career. I think I had about nine months left to do, maybe a year left to do. It ended up extending in the end. But uh, yeah, I was preparing for the end of my career because I was getting medically discharged because of my hearing. And I had made the decision that, yeah, I, I I liked working with recruits. I liked seeing people go on a similar journey that I've been on before, coming from many walks of life, to then begin their career as a commando. And um, yeah, and I also enjoyed being part of it to keep the standards up as well, uh, keeping those which didn't have it within themselves to, to make the cut, although on reflection, most of us do have it within ourselves. And um, it was at that time that the FA or England, someone got in touch with the Royal Marines to say, oh, can we have a bit of an experience of you guys to ready ourselves for this? And I heard it through the grapevine. There's 2,000 people, civilians, recruits and Marines serving at the Commando Training Centre. And uh, they're looking for five people. <laughs> I was like, God, who's going to be in the mix of this one? And um, it just so happens that my name got put forward to, to be part of it. And I was picked. And I was part of a five or six man team uh, to take the England football team on an experience that they'll never forget. Uh, and one I would never forget. And I remember we, we did so much planning for it as well. And uh, the guys I was serving with on that training team, two two others were actually involved in it as well. And um, we spent so much time laughing, <laughs> giggling up to the point of doing it because we it was just surreal. It was just, are they really going to come down? Like everyone thought it was a joke, like that it wouldn't actually unfold in the end. But they did. The I think it was the Wednesday before they came down. We got the heads up saying, yeah, it's definitely on. And then the Friday, we the, the small team of us prepared the kit for their arrival and, and waited. And they were, the England team were actually meant to get picked up by helicopters up at St. George's Park and flown down, which would have taken about 45 minutes, maybe an hour to get them down there. What actually happened was <laughs> the helicopters uh, were redirected and couldn't pick up the England football team. So they had to get a coach, and, <laughs> which kind of spoiled, I think, the first initial... Shocker capture that they've gone from, yeah, you're going to get on helicopters to just get on the bus, lads, and have a four-hour journey down. Yeah. So they got to the training centre a bit later than uh, expected. And I remember um, I was on Woodbury Common, which is one of the commando training areas. And I was there with the team, and we were all set up ready for their arrival. But the the England team were going to – sorry, I was there with the training team. The England team were actually going to the camp first to get all their gear, put on military fatigues, and then get a – and some kit to use to come up to the common with. And uh, I remember hearing that they'd arrived at camp and instantly it was like all six of us were just excited school children. Like, oh, they're coming, they're coming. <laughs> Getting a little bit starstruck before they've even arrived. Our sergeant, Taff Prosser, was, uh, he said, lads, make sure you get a grip of yourself. So when they come through, I want them to think we're all steely Royal Marines, not all giddy kids. And we're like, yes, Sergeant, we'll be so we're getting, trying to get all the laughter out of ourselves. And then the, uh, the the military vehicles turned up with the team on it, the England team, and they all started getting out one by one. And I was in the woods 
watching back through and they all started come creeping into the woods one by one and they looked really intimidated and it was just so surreal it's like oh shit there's harry kane like oh my god there's gareth southgate they're actually here <laughs> like in inside i was just like a little kid looking at another one of the corporals danny and we were just smirking at one another going is this really happening and then it was like, no, it's go time now. And like switched the face completely. It's like, oh, fucking can get a grip yourself and get over it now. What are you looking at, Southgate? Stop dawdling. And we introduced them into our world. And for the first few hours, it was carnage because they just, they're not military and we're trying to get them to do military things. So was Gareth Southgate kind of on a level with everybody else then? At the, yeah, as you yeah. Were so from yeah. Kitman. So he's just like one of, one of the team. Yeah, yeah. So everyone's like, in the same boat. There was no ranks, there was no captains, yeah. there was no manager. It was uh, the kit man and coach driver all the way through to the England manager and everyone in between. Wow. That's and that cool. was one of the first things he wanted to do was bring this cohesion in, bring this unified way of thinking. There was no player, there was no kit man, there was no manager. We are England. That was the approach. Yeah. And, and I can't say what they are because they hold them very close to their chest, but they arrived with three values as well. And each one of those values represented the lion, each lion on the shirt. And it was about every single person, part of the England setup, understanding what those values truly mean and how they work for the cohesion of the club as opposed to each individual player. Because all the way up to that point, Manchester United players would sit with Manchester United players. Tottenham would sit with Tottenham. Arsenal would sit with Arsenal at the training camp. And, and Gareth wanted to get rid of that. And this was a way of doing it. And, you know, they went through very challenging situations of assault courses, um, some big runs, but not runs as maybe we would do normally out in trainers, but boots and a heavy kit on. They did the commando endurance course, which is one of the four tests. And they, they spent a day in the um, urban combat environment, learning how to clear buildings. And they learned about us. They learned about our ethos our values, who we are, and what it means to be a Royal Marine and what it means to be to live by a set of standards, set of values, and what it means to be part of a team. And I think that really was one of the biggest things that they took away, that it's it's not down to the individual, it's down to the entire group, whether you're ironing a shirt or you're making the actual strategic patterns on on the pitch with what you see happening with tactics or you're actually kicking the ball. Everyone's part of it. And had they won the World Cup, I would have sat here and gone, yeah, all me. Everything I said yeah, well, was you'd us. Probably we be, did that. Uh, at, at the Palace to pick up your OBE to, you know, congratulate you for your, your role. Joke, it, right? The night they were playing, oh, who did we get knocked out by? I can't, oh, I can't remember who it was. But uh, the night they got knocked out of the World Cup, the two hours before we had a phone call because I was with the training team, which took them through. We literally watched the entire World Cup together. Yeah, we got a phone call saying, guys, if they win this, you're going to have to be in London in two days to go on this morning to talk about how you've helped the England football team get to the finals. Oh, wow. So I was watching that going, I've got this book coming out and trying to do all these things, moving away from the Marines and going to coaching thinking, oh my God, I hope they win because it'll not only help the World Cup, but it's going to launch my career. And, and they lost. But they lost in a way that I personally watched that game and thought they were just absolutely fatigued. And when you're fatigued, it means you've put so much effort into something that you're tired and you can almost no longer push on. And I, yeah. I genuinely am immensely proud to have worked with them. I'm immensely proud to stay in touch with them as well, but immensely proud of what that England football team was at, 
at that point uh, in the World Cup. Yeah, it's changed a little bit since, but it reflected what I think a Marine thinks. And, and you can tell they listened, which really demonstrates a degree of, or an immense degree of humility as well. And what an amazing experience, though. I mean, just to like, like so I've been at a few of those where you sort of find yourself at, at weird dinners as well and you're sort of sitting next to people that you've seen on tv and it just kind of feels a bit surreal right but to put people through their paces like that and to have to work so closely with people must have been a totally surreal experience yeah and and there was a point it was actually on the first evening when the sort of giddiness had worn off and the 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 chaotic serials that we put them through had been done we were actually all just sat around in small little groups in a wood in, in devon and it was very basic. That's what it is. You, we, yeah. People call it the caveman TV. We sat there watching little fires. And I'm sat with the physio. Uh, it was me, the physio. Um, there was someone else. One of the other players was there and Harry Kane. Yeah. And we were just sharing a drink, sharing a hot drink that we've made on the rations, on the fire with, with the rations. And, and I asked her. In fact, it got so chilled out and relaxed in how we were as humans. I, I started moaning about how much I'd just paid to go to Lanzarote. And I was like, because he'd just got back from Dubai. And he was really humble about it. It's like, yeah, I've just got back from holiday from Dubai and looking forward to sort of the international break now. I was like, oh, yeah, I've, I've just booked a holiday to Lanzarote. It's cost me four grand. Hasn't prices gone up recently in, in holidays? And he just he just went along with it. He just nodded. He's like, yeah, they have gone up somewhat. And then I thought, oh, he probably pays four grand for a dinner. That's probably like his, yeah, like his bar bill for one night or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which kind of dawned on me after I said it. I was like, why am I moaning to Harry Kane about... But he liked it. And I asked him the sort of normal cliche question of what's it like to score in front of 30,000 people. And uh, he... Uh, well, sorry, 80,000 people. And, he, and he, he was really honest. And it was quite humbling to hear how he spoke of it. But then he asked me questions and he was like, what's it like to go to war? And he actually let into the fact that had he not become a player and be successful, he wanted to join the military. And it was, very, it was just a really honest, open conversation. I was, I was quite honest with what it is like to go to war. And I truly believe he, he definitely took away a little bit of what I said there. Let's talk about a couple of other things before we finish. So in the book, you talk about five steps in planning a goal. Mm-hmm. So I think this is, again, a really interesting thing in that you've probably spent a long time sat there thinking about what works and what doesn't in a, in a really specific, really full-on context. And I just wonder what the crossovers with this stuff might be into kind of productivity and business and, and making stuff happen. So tell us about the five steps in planning a goal. Yeah, I, I'm one of those people which aren't too religious on goal setting as well. But it's part of what I do in a sense of my daily routine and, and what I coach and teach to people is because in the military, we have that sort of do the basics right and the harder stuff's a bit easier to do. And I see my business partner, Tomo, he, he does like the lengthiest goal setting routines. <laughs> it takes up hours and it doesn't fit me. And what I wanted to write into Commando Mindset was, because everyone's got their own different opinion and different way of doing goals, I just wanted to give my own perspective. And I broke it down into the five sort of steps of what I'd been following basically my entire career, the goals that helped me get away from doing drugs all the way through to the Marines and then now into business. 
And it's very simple. You know, step one is is picking a goal that actually motivates you. You, you can instantly jump towards New Year's and, and think of how many people set New Year's resolutions. They're going to be a vegan. They're going to do dry January. They're going to go to the gym every day. They're going to save some money. And then you get midway through January. It's like, oh, yeah, I forgot this was the tightest month of the year. I'm, I'm desperate for a beer because the kids are killing me. And I'm going to have a steak and I don't know where my gym card is. I'm not saying everyone does that, <laughs> but it's easy to come across people who are like, yeah, I kind of get to the mid month and then, and then it goes. And that's really because it's a sort of off the cuff. It's done in a bit of a, I'll give something a go fashion where to me, this links to your inspiration. What truly drives you? What truly motivates you? And that's why you need to pick something that motivates you are you running a race because you want to run the race or you're running a race because someone else is running it and you think you should and there's a difference between that that's it? the thing with a lot of new year's resolutions they're they're generally shoulds based on what we think society uh, is telling us that we should be doing right yeah and we feel compelled to do it don't we feel oh, it's new year new me i, I don't know what this next year is going to bring for a lot of people and what we set but I've stopped kind of holding myself account to those news resolutions now. I don't really talk about them. You know, if I say anything, it'll be what's something I might want to achieve this year that I've not done before. That's really what it is. When it comes to goal setting, why, why do we need to leave it to the 31st of December or the 1st of January to, to make that decision? The irony is as well, I used to do this and be like, right, I'm going to be dry all January and not drink. Yet five past midnight, you're still drinking. <laughs> On, on news and, and you like stood there the champagne glass half cut going i'm gonna have a dry month start on the second obviously yeah, exactly and for me that didn't fit well i was always like why start on the second it doesn't so it, when you really look at it it's it's understanding what motivates you and and why can't you just begin that right the second you know some of the people i work with and who i coach personally I hear, hear him quite often saying, I'm looking forward to giving this a go, or I want to do that, or I don't know when to begin this. Do it now. That's, there is some time, there is planning, there is preparation, but you can start what you want to achieve right this second, even if that's just by thinking of it or writing something down. But it has to be linked to what motivates you, what, what is actually driving you. And the second one is, is time and date. You, know, you have to be accountable. When do you want to achieve this by? What is it that you want to achieve? For what reason? Which is that whole motivation, that step one point. But when are you actually going to achieve it by? Because that's the other thing that I see a lot of people make mistakes in. It's, I'm going to do this, but I don't know when I'm going to do it by. Well, actually, when we decide to choose that date, it actually helps us to work backwards. You know, I, I want to be in this position by that point. You know, health and fitness is such an easy way to look at it. When do you want to do the race? Or when do you want to be that weight? And how do you work back from that instead of trying to work forwards all the time? It's like, oh, what do I need to do next week? It's like, actually, when's the end date? And what are you going to be like a week before that end date? How are you going to get to that point? And then kind of work it back in hurdles like that uh, and take gradual steps forward. And I think like just being specific is a really important part of all of this, which I guess leads us on to number three, which is thinking about smart goals, right? And setting your goal recipe. Yeah, step, so step three is using a recipe. Uh, strangely, uh, you wouldn't just start baking a cake without a recipe or a method to do it. And again, a cliche point, but I wanted to put a constructive um, strategy in there, which I think we all know. A lot of people have come across smart. You know, if you're thinking about the recipe, it's having that ingredients, what resources do you need, how much time, and what's the method you're going to use to achieve it. 
when you look at smart, it's something that we've seen a lot within the business world, or smarter, or the smart plan. Sorry, it's we see a lot within the business world. We see I, even at school, I remember hearing it. But actually, it, it is a very relevant strategy. It's a very good strategy to have. I used to use it with the recruits to make sure that they were achieving the goals they need to achieve to move on to the next week. Uh, I used it in my own career. I used it in business. It's and it's very relevant. And that's because you know, S stands for having a specific strategy. It's, you're going to set this goal that motivates you. You're going to have your time and your date you want to achieve it by. But what's the specific route for getting there? Is it your business plan? Is it is it a physical training program? Is it planning how you're going to save to buy the wedding ring or the engagement ring to ask him or her to marry? You know, there's so many different ways of looking at this um, when it's applied more towards life. The M is measurable. You know, A, how are you going to measure it to get to that point? How are you going to know you're hitting your KPIs, your your key points you want to achieve, but also is it within your remit? And and that kind of leads into attainable. I would love to go to the moon. Is there a chance I'm going to get to the moon? Probably not. So I can kind of put that goal to one side. If the opportunity ever comes up, yeah, I'll jump all over it. I guess if you get Harry Kane to lend you the cash, you could probably go with Elon Musk. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'll ring them both up. I'll ring Harry up. But But there's things that, yeah, we can't achieve. It's natural that we can't achieve everything in this world, but what is attainable that you can definitely achieve? And that's not down to skill. That's not down to almost ability as well. There's so many things that you can achieve that for many of us, we restrict ourselves from doing because we think it's outside of our skill zone. It's outside of our ability zone. Actually, most of the time, it's outside of our comfort zone. And we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. We have to embrace those fears that, we either look at and say, oh, that's not attainable. Is it not attainable for the reason that you actually physically can't achieve it? And yes, that then it's out of the question. Or is it not attainable because you don't think you can achieve it? And again, that's what I really work hard with people is to get them to try and achieve something that they don't think they can achieve. It's not that they can't achieve, it's that they don't think they can achieve. And you show someone that they can, they go and do it. Again, I'm trying to speak from personal experience. That's definitely what I've done. And relevant, you know, are you using the correct strategies to get there? Is it relevant to what you actually want to achieve? That kind of goes back to step one. Does it actually motivate you? Are you doing this for the right reasons or are you doing it for someone else? Uh, And the T is time bound, which again links to, to point two. And then we move on to step four, which is breaking that sort of long term goals into shorter, small goals. I remember being in, in training and thinking I'd bitten off more than I can chew within two, three days of being there because I'd focused on the end. I'd seen the the final troop in training. I'm thinking about getting this green beret. Oh, what an amazing achievement to get there. But actually there's 32 weeks that stand between me and that moment. And the long-term goal, the inspiration is to put your hands on that green piece of cloth and wear pride and, and join the elite. That doesn't come overnight. That has to come through day in, day out adversity difficulty a learning curve which is like the hockey stick uh, model it's just straight up and it's very difficult and so the long-term goal is to finally get to that point and and achieve passing those four commando tests and becoming a marine but the short-term goals is getting through that next day what what have we got on this week that i have to get correct to make sure i can move to the next week otherwise i'm gone and we have to do this we all have a to b but you've got to take the steps in the middle you have to have the stepping stones. However you want, way you want to look at it, breaking that big long-term goal down into smaller steps is very healthy to 
achieve what we want to achieve. I want to be this weight, but I want to be this weight by next week. And it helps us with our success. You know, the pleasure chemicals, if we're aware of our endorphins, oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonin, that we can actually hit mini landmarks or, or little milestones between now and the big the big achievement is, well, then we can be conscious of how good we're feeling and how much sort of progression we're making towards what we want to achieve as well. You know, having that long-term goal is good. It's healthy to have, but we've got to have something in the middle that can keep us focused along the way. Because when adversity strikes and it gets difficult, you've got to have those little reminders there to say, keep going. This makes you feel good. It's not as big as you want it to be, but it makes you feel good. We're making steps towards what we want to achieve. And then, so the final bit is sharing this with a friend, which I guess when you're, you know, you're talking about goals and motivation in the context of everybody's probably going to go through some really hard times when you're, when you're commander, there's going to be those days where you need somebody else to remind you of your purpose. Like that kind of, that sense of having other people on board as part of the journey must be really important, right? Yeah. Uh, you no matter what you do in life, you're going to have low moments. And those low moments are easy to face when someone's near you uh, or who is bought in on, on your own ambition. I think it was week four of training, still a civilian. And if you wanted to leave training, you would write a letter to your troop commander. So your troop's about 30, maybe 40 strong. And it'd be, you'd have a captain, a Royal Marines captain, who is the troop commander, and then a sergeant, and then four corporals. And you'd basically just write a letter, a polite letter, saying, I wish to terminate my career within the Royal Marines. It's not for me, and I want to leave. You know, every recruit has that right up to a certain point. And um, I was writing my letter out because I just, I just felt out my depth. I just didn't think I could do this. It was quickly ramping up. Uh, I'd already injured myself. I was feeling a little bit sorry for myself. And uh, I, was, I was writing my letter up. Uh, and one of the lads in my room walked by me. It's a big, tall, blonde lad called Damo. You know, sort of epitomised what a Marine looks like. You know, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I, 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 I almost, like, basically got busted. I'm writing my letter. And we're in six-man rooms, so you didn't have much privacy. But you're writing your letter up. So like, yeah, I, I'm going to go, mate. I've... I don't think this is right for me. It's, it's more for you guys. You're better at this. And uh, and he just convinced me. He's like, look, don't hand it in. Because I was going to hand it in as soon as I'd written the letter. He went, don't hand it in. Just wait till this evening, see how today goes. Because in training, you wake up in the morning. like <laughs> You just feel fucked and tired. And when you feel like that, you feel pretty sad. And it's not, you get those morning blues. Oh, I don't want to. I just want to hand it in. He went, oh, come on. Promise me. You don't hand it in until tonight. It's like, okay all right, I'll leave it till tonight. I'll get through today. What's a day to get through? The evening came and I went to hand the letter in and the door wasn't open. I said, oh, shit, the captain's gone home. I have like, oh, to wait till tomorrow. And then I went back to the room and Damo was like, just, mate, just give it to the end of the week. We'll, have, we'll get through this week. We'll have a beer at the weekend. Let's see how we get through it. And I agreed. I was like, okay, all right, I'll put it away and I'll, I'll leave it in my locker for some time. And I got to the end of that week and then, 20 weeks went by. And then in week 24, Damo had his own low moment. And he was, he was having a, a letter writing moment where he didn't want to be in training anymore because he was finding something very difficult. And the, the conversation reversed and he stayed. And we both passed out to be Royal Marines. We both went to Afghanistan. In fact, we were both in the first, our first contact with the enemy together on the wall, fighting the enemy side by side, which is quite uncommon to go through your career all the way up to that point with people. And that's what it's about. Would we ever be on the wall together had one of us not turned around and gone, don't write your letter out? 
you know, stick with it. But he knew what I was trying to achieve and I knew what he was trying to achieve when it mattered for him. And that's why I really believe in that you should share with the right people. It's not about going on Instagram and saying, I'm doing this. It's about being with people you trust to say, look, I'm a little bit overweight, but next year I want to complete a marathon. Will you support me on this? Yeah, of course. What a great thing to do. Look, I'm thinking of going to build a business. Same thing I had with my wife. We've got a mortgage, two cars to pay for, and some children to pay for. Would you mind chucking your job in because I need to go and run a business? Okay, let's do this properly and I'll support you. And then what she wants to do, that's healthy for us because when things get difficult and they're hard, exactly like it was for myself and, and that guy on the mountain that I now know what inspires him. So the next time I see him and he's having a down day, I can give him a little nudge, say, hey, remember your daughter and that Range Rover. You can do the same for me. And if we keep it too much, too locked up in one another or in ourselves, it's harder to keep progressing forwards when things do get difficult, which they inevitably do. So step five is about sharing that journey with someone, someone you trust, someone who can relate to what you're doing and someone who knows you, but perhaps someone who can also hold you to account. Yeah, I talk a lot about a productivity ninja as a human and not a superhero. And I guess, I guess that's part of the same thing, right? Like yeah. we all have those moments where even with the best of intentions we're we're far from far from having any special powers to get us out of a situation or get us to where we need to be and that's um, why i speak very openly about myself in as a marine everyone sort of thinks you're these sort of courageous heroic fearless people where actually if you're honest and say no most of the time you're scared most of the time you're worried most of the time you're fearful most of the time you wanted to quit most of the time you wanted to give up but it was the people around you who kept you going that's very healthy and it's healthy to a admit that but b have that in your life um let's finish just talking about fear then that's a nice little um segue so you've got a whole chapter on face your fears in the book and the bit that stood out for me was the idea of tips for fear-free sleep and i know it's just a little kind of little box in a much bigger chapter but it just sort of struck me that there must have been times where you've been in really difficult situations and then you but what you really need at that moment is to sleep and rest and recover and be ready for the next day and you talk in this little section of the book a few things in there are probably the things that most people would expect so you know doing 30 to 40 minutes exercise during the day don't eat too close to bedtime avoid the blue screens um, and meditation but what really struck me was having a 30 second cold shower an hour before bed. Yeah, it's not the most pleasurable thing to do. And especially now we're in the winter months. But uh, it was something I stumbled across a while ago, which I started implementing. And again, I'll be honest, I don't do this every day. This isn't about having a cold shower. It's not a religion. <laughs> it's the odd thing that helps. And a cold shower works in two ways. When you have it in the morning, it, it, it spikes that those endorphins and that adrenaline because you're having that cold embrace and it's, it's obviously nice to do, but it does wake you up. It sparks you up. What it actually does towards the latter part of the day is it, when you're immersed in cold water for a short, not too long, extended piece of time, but when you're immersed in cold water, it also helps secrete more uh, melatonin, which is the chemical that helps regulate our sleep. And having a cold shower right before bed is not going to be too helpful, but having a cold shower, sort of that run-up towards bedtime is is proven to help release more melatonin where you snuggle up, you get warm, your body is secreting that chemical that then re regulates your sleep pattern that helps you fall into a deeper sleep. And that's 
what a lot of us sort of long for and search for when we're feeling stressed, when we're feeling worried about something. And and yeah, the um, the the first few tips everyone knows it's whether they implement it for a start. You know, getting thirty to forty minutes exercise is good for us. We know this; it's good for our physical health and 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 mental health. But it does fatigue us. I sometimes go running in the evening, and I know my sleep is disrupted because of it. But I went running this morning, and I know I'm going to sleep way better this evening. I feel really chilled out today. I feel relaxed. I can go home. I'll eat sort of around six, seven o'clock, go to bed at 10. I'll read a great book I'm reading at the moment, Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. Unbelievable read. And begin to switch off. And even the meditation, a lot of people know that. I don't, I'm not really someone, I suggest it, but I'm not someone who sits around and meditates the conventional way of in a quiet space with, with some form of ambient music on or something. I actually gain my mindfulness and meditation from running in the dark on trails because you have to be 100% present but that's good as well that, that kind of fatigues the mind and body which you want in order to have better night's sleep but the cold shower yeah I had to get it in there because it's it, it just those little things that we just don't know where other people stumble upon and, and say are really helpful we melatonin we need to release melatonin to regulate our sleep and, and get our head down better I was saying to someone a couple of weeks ago how I, I was really jealous of their sea swimming. But whenever I try and do sea swimming, even in the summer, I'm just like, oh, my God, it's so cold. <laughs> right? So, yeah. And um, she was saying, no, what you need to do is you do the Wim Hof method. And then the Wim Hof method is all about you build up your body's tolerance to cold showers. And then by the end of it, you're doing kind of two minute freezing cold showers in the morning and all the rest of it. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't sound like fun, but it it just... For me, this feels like one of those ideas that just keeps coming around and knocking me on the head at the moment. And it's like, I feel like there might be a New Year's resolution coming on for next year. But this is where it all comes back to being conscious about what you're doing, doesn't it? Because I don't religiously have a cold shower every day. I don't religiously not watch blue screen before bed. I don't religiously read a book. And that's me personally. I'm not too hard on myself for missing days because... I find it's within balance of how I'm feeling. Like today I feel really chilled out um, because I, I ran this morning. So I've done one of those things. Maybe I'll probably read my book before bed tonight. The two of those things, but I know I'm going to have a nice sleep. But if I'm in a stress state or a feared state or worried state, which we can naturally find ourselves in as parents, as just normal life or in a business that, okay, maybe I need to sort of get that exercise in earlier, not eat so late. Maybe I go and meditate today, do 20 minutes listening to just river water, go and do that run, have that culture. It's the time and place to do it. We don't have to really push ourselves as hard as we think we should. We just need to push ourselves into those areas of like cold showers and stuff when we know we should, because it's going to benefit us. And I suppose that's the paradox, isn't it? A lot of the time is that the times where we really need additional routine or additional self-care those times when we're really under stress are often the times where we neglect ourselves the most, right? So I suppose that's the real learning from this, isn't it? It's like, if, if you're feeling that right now, you know, don't think that you're too busy to do the things that are going to help you sleep or to do the things that are going to reduce your stress. You know, it's really important that in those moments to, to double down on that and, and make sure you give it more attention, not less. Yeah. And it's so easy to have a drink, eat bad food, not exercise when you're feeling stressed it's that but that's the point where we need to take most control and and action those things in order to keep our momentum up 
Well, it's been really great to chat to you, Ben, and just fascinating conversation. So just tell us how people can find out more about you and your work and how people can get hold of the book. Yeah, so um, my work currently is, like everyone's, is a bit all over the place. If you want to get directly in contact for um, any coaching or working with anyone's business or teams, you can go straight to findyouredgecoaching.com. But my book, Commando Mindset, is out January the 14th in 2021 i keep saying to everyone just grab yourself a copy it might be a nice way to start completely new year considering what we've been through this year and all my details are within that book as well quite lively on instagram ben underscore williams underscore cm and um yeah look forward to hearing from people great stuff thanks so much for being on beyond busy cheers thanks graham So thanks again to Ben for being on the show and thanks as ever to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show, for uh, particularly for piecing all of this on together and to Podient, our host for the show. Before you go, I want to tell you really quickly about next week's episode. It's a very, very special one. So next week is Beyond Busy episode 100. We're going to be basically doing a best bits episode. So lots of my favourite little uh, bits of conversation we're going to be revisiting some of our uh, very well-known guests that we've had and just been lucky to talk to on the show. And yeah, just really excited about this uh, compilation episode that we're doing next week for Beyond Busy 100. So yeah, stay tuned for that one. Don't miss it. It's going to be a really exciting one. So that's next week, Beyond Busy episode 100. And it'll be a little bit longer than usual. And the idea is that, especially when we're in this lockdown period, uh, I want to just really be putting out as much value and content and stuff that will help people as possible and just keep people's spirits up i had my little um blip before christmas where i just went into a bit of a a period of depression funk and i wrote about it on um on my rev up for the week email um which you can sign up to at graymalcott.com and you can find that piece actually we'll just put a link to it in the show notes but um, we put some of the weekly emails um just out on my uh website's blog as well so Uh, We'll put a link to that piece, um, which was uh, what not to do when the wheels fall off. Um, But yeah, it's um, one of those things where I'm sort of starting the year thinking, oh, God, I just really need to be putting out positivity here. And if that helps one person, then it kind of feels like everything I do from my little shed is uh, is worthwhile. So uh, if you're getting any value from this stuff, then uh, let me know and um, let me know also if there's stuff that I can help with or you think would be helpful for me to be putting out just to keep people's spirits up. Let's do that for each other, raise each other up over the next few weeks. So uh, keep each other safe. So, um, yeah, next week is Beyond Busy, episode 100. I can't quite believe we're at that milestone. Um, Feels uh, pretty amazing to be in the triple figures as of next week. So, um, yeah, strap in for it. It's going to be a long one, but it's going to be packed with really interesting people and good conversations. So uh, it'll be one to grab a sandwich for, grab a coffee for, absolutely. But, yeah, it's going to be good. So next week, Beyond Busy 100, strap in. See you then. Take care. Bye for now. (laughs) 